Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. In just two hours, the atomic rocket will take off on its flight to the moon, circumnavigating it on its journey, and then returning to this Earth, thus achieving the most ambitious scientific adventure of all time. 25 monitoring stations throughout the world in direct communication with the base here will follow the course of XC by means of radar installed in artificial satellites that have been launched into space at intervals during the last few years. The name of the pilot is not yet known. It is being kept secret till the last moment. There are three men who are eligible for this coveted task. From Russia, England, and America, which of them will be first to attempt, in the immortal words of Shakespeare, full soon to draw the cloud that hides the silver moon? That they may not move from the enclosure allotted to them. Attention, attention. Viewers, I was handed only a moment ago the pilot's name. The first man to be launched into space is the American John McLaren. everybody and welcome to the our first proper episode of our first season of Wild Wild Podcast. I'm calling this season Italiani Nello Spazio or Italians in Space and I would like to welcome our co-host to the show Rod Barnett. Hi Rod. Hey Adrian how are you doing? Yeah good. Uh, I've, I've My problem at the moment is having too many films to watch for too many different projects something i'm sure you you can relate to uh yes yes i can i'm i'm contemplating another project as we speak and to to do so <laughs> is going to require me to uh spend a little time watching zorro movies so i'm kind of wondering if i'm nice. going to do that or not <laughs> not that i don't like zorro movies it's just that's yeah. a that's a major detour if i go do that so mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's only so much time in the world to fit all this stuff in, but the, it's difficult to say no when things are so fun. But um, so anyway, so what we're doing then with this season, I've picked out 10 films that cover a, a time period of roughly 20 years in the, and it's kind of the the genesis of the Italian space science fiction film, uh, which is what we're going to cover today, all the way through to the sort of tail end when the films became known as Star Wars knockoffs, which is perhaps a little unfair, um, but we can we can decide on that when we get there. But anyway, so today we're going to talk about the day the sky exploded, or La Morte Viene dello Spazio, uh, the direct translation of which is Death Comes from Outer Space, uh, which is incidentally what it was released as in the UK. I love so that title, by the, the way. Death comes from outer yeah. space. It's both descriptive I mean, it, and accurate. Yeah, hmm. and a bit more threatening. Yes. The, uh, the the day the sky exploded appears to be the U.S. title that it was given when it was released over there. So this film uh, was technically 
directed by Mario Bava. Um, it's, it's kind of listed as being his first full feature film that he directed, but his name was not in the credits as the director. The uh, official director was Paolo Hoish, um, but it would appear that he just allowed his name to be used to get the funding, but he actually was happy for Mario Bava to have a go. Um, and so this is a Bava film with Bava special effects uh, as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through. So, Rod, was this a film that you were familiar with? I know you're a Bava fan. Well, I had uh, I was aware of the title and I was aware that the film existed. But strangely enough, because of its, the, the title's similarity to another science fiction film that has nothing to do with this, I had been laboring under the complete misapprehension for years that I had seen this movie and I had not. Uh, so, oh. and I only discovered this a few weeks ago when I was looking at the trailer for this movie and realized that nothing looked familiar. So uh, <laughs> this is uh, this is essentially a new uh, a new view for me. I've never seen this movie before until just recently. Uh, now having watched it a couple of times, uh, I can say uh, it's uh, it's good that this is not known as Mario Bava's feature debut as a director because. <laughs> I I much prefer I, I I much prefer going and saying you know it was really it was it was Black Sunday let's just say, <laughs> let's mm -hmm. go with that and uh, mm -hmm. everybody could be happier because there's precious little of what I think Baba fans love and adore about him that you're going to find in this picture. Mm. What well, the the feeling that I got when I was watching the film we'll go through the plot in a minute but um, this reminded me of Ed Wood. Uh, not because it's a bad film, but because it's basically a, a stock footage film. Yeah. And there's there's that great moment in the movie of Edward where he's looking at all of this sort of footage at a film studio. And he says, oh, if I had all this footage, I'd make a movie. It'd be great. You know? And it feels like that's what happened here, that they had all of this stock footage around. And then they just tasked somebody to come up with <laughs> to come up with a story that meant they could use this stock footage mm -hmm. to make about 50% of the running time or whatever it is and then they would shoot some stuff in a tiny studio to fill in all the gaps um, it definitely feels like that but I, I think that's great I, I mean it's kind of impressive that they were able to piece a story together from all of this disparate uh, footage that's in different, it's probably in different aspect ratios and different <laughs> film stocks yeah. from different different times and they've they've pieced it all together to make a story so uh, so I suppose although this is Mario Bava's feature debut he only directed about half of it anyway because the other half was pre-existing footage I know and that is so odd when it is it is you're, it's completely true that well over half of the film footage that you see in this picture I mean it's it's a short enough movie in the first place so what is it about 82 minutes and yeah. well at well over 40 minutes of that really is stock footage it's bizarre i mean it's a great way to be able to save money on a budget and i'm sure you're right that the <laughs> the impetus to do this was probably hey man we can we can do this on the cheap because we have so much footage of you know rockets taking off and all these different things and the amount of special effects we'll actually have to piece together can be done actually using the stock footage it's it's um mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing when you think about the amount of, the amount of creativity that goes in, that, that goes into something like this, and just you know it's it's done not not because people are, are are striving to be creative, but because they're striving to to get something done when they don't have any cash. Yeah, and the the stock footage nature of it was not lost upon uh, reviewers. Um, I was I did discover that like I said, this film was was released in the UK as Death Comes From Outer Space. Um, although it came out in Italy in 1958, it wasn't actually here until um, 1961. Mm -hmm. And uh, the review says, faced with a small budget, oh sorry, this is the monthly film bulletin review. Faced with a small budget and an extremely elaborate subject, the producers of this Franco-Italian science fiction film have turned to stock footage to such an extent that this might well be termed the stock shot film par excellence. <laughs> so they're kind of praising its use of the stock footage. So often you would sort of dismiss a film as using loads of stock footage and oh, you know, it's a bit rubbish. But here they're kind of saying it's you know it's a plus. <laughs> 
you can sort of ad- admire what they've done with it, which I think is great. Yeah, and I I certainly do because the you know the the amount of the amount of stock footage being so much of the movie, and then the other elements where when you start to parse what's actually been created specifically to create this movie, when you look at the footage that is you know unique to the movie, you begin to realize also that they may have only had one set and then just redressed it a few times to do various yeah. scenes within it. I, I you know the, the 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 poverty on display is kind of matched by the level of creativity used to make it look mm-hmm. like something bigger than it is. Yeah, the 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 reviewer says uh in fairness it should be added that this disparate material has been quite ingeniously assembled. So, you know, yeah. props to the editor for making all this stuff work. It's uh, uh, and I'm sure Barva wasn't uh, was was also involved in the uh, in the editing, piecing all this thing together. Well, I'm sure he was definitely involved in a lot of the uh, the, the yeah. neat use of of glass mat shots that enhance some of the, the some of the rocket footage. Mm. Uh, so he would have to have been involved in the editing. One would assume, yeah. Yes, because you see, yeah. So the um, the the special effect sequences are where you know, which is where we, we perhaps you know, would know Bava best at this point in his career. People were bringing him in as a special effects expert, and he was the guy to go to at this point. Nobody else was really doing this stuff yet. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've got rocket shots. We've got uh, I don't know what those things are like big halos in the sky over oh, the yeah. cities. We've got all kinds of stuff that's going on, and if you read, if you read the Bava book by Tim Lucas, he talks about the way in which some of these special effects were being done, and it was just really simple stuff like projecting a picture on a sheet and then waving a light around behind it and then filming that, mm-hmm. like really simple stuff. Uh, so Bava was was a genius, as we know, at creating special effects on a on a very low budget, um, and it's great to see an early example of that. It's only a real shame here that what the only available print at the moment of this film because it's it's not officially available anywhere it seems to have fallen through various copyright cracks so the only version of the film that you can see is quite soft and it would be nice to be able to appreciate those special effects in a slightly more um, higher definition yeah i fear that uh it would take it would take a, a, a leap of, of, of faith on anybody who would spend the money to, you know, <laughs> obtain a, a, as good a print as possible and and, and mm. pretty it up for video release, essentially because I don't know that anybody would believe that they would, you know, get a real return on their, their dollar, the no. uh, or, or return on their lira or what, you know, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever it might yeah. take. Because it this, would need to be part of a box set or something, I guess. Yes, yes, it would. And it's like, I agree with you. I, I would love to be able to watch this in a much more crisp, kind of high-definition uh, version just to be able to get a really good look at some of the... Uh, I hate to say this, but just to, to get a better look at the seams, you know, where the, where the stitching is viewable, so to say, about mm-hmm. how they did what they did. Uh, it's In other words, more out of curiosity than out of fascination, I guess. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about the story. And it's quite interesting that the, um, you know, Roger Corman was making a film in a similar, with a similar plot, um, at the same time. Because this is a this is one of those ripped from the headlines type films, yeah. um, where you're they're basing it, you know, they're making a film about what is happening right now, and it's all about satellites and space and space exploration which was obviously big news in the late 1950s. And what I think is great with this one is that they've got Americans and Russians and another guy who I think may have been German, but there's a few different countries and they're all working together. Like it's a a kind of, you know, um, arms around the world type collaboration. There's no suggestion in this film that there's a Cold War. You know, they're all just happily working together, and I know it's oddly, it's oddly utopian in that, in that, mm. in, in in that we have you know almost you know every European country represented. Uh, the whole film is supposedly taking place in Australia. The mm. uh, 
there are participants around the globe who are helping to track the uh, the rocket once it gets into Earth orbit. So we get representatives from you know se- several different nations, uh, invo- you know, in quote unquote involved in the story, and it it it's it's very odd that the idea of just completely ignoring the the the, the, the political tensions uh, that yeah. existed in the world when the film was made. As if, you know, in just a couple of years, because they're not setting this in the far future. They're setting this at most a couple or three years from the time the film is being made. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's like I I applaud their uh, (laughs) I applaud their uh, their view of the world as having come together for this kind of uh, huge scale human project. Uh, But there's Mm -hmm. also that part of me nagging in the back of my head that uh, thinks that uh, one of the reasons they might have opted for this uh, kind of multinational view of, uh, of of the space race, as it were, is to uh, make it more palatable to sell the film in lots of different countries around the world. Yeah, true. There's certainly, although they're sort of passing it off as, um, as an American film in everyone, it was clearly shot with English in mind. All the signs on the mm-hmm. walls and everything are, are all in English. Yeah, there's none of that sort of cold war paranoia that is more familiar with science fiction films of this period and obviously um so roger corman's film war of the satellites was was being made around the same time um and uh, is that a film that you're familiar with war of the satellites yes yes uh, i've watched it a couple of times and um m- m- most impressive for being the only starring role for dick miller usually he's a supporting That's player true. and he's and, he's, and yeah. he's actually quite good but yeah it's it's a pretty interesting little movie and how would you say that compares to this one in terms of the kind of Cold War angle? Uh, I, you know, I don't remember the Cold War angle within the film. I do remember thinking that it was not a great movie, but okay, uh, which puts it, I hate to say it, but kind of puts it on par with this one. Mm. Not to, um, not to go ahead and throw my own opinion out there about the film as it stands, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, it's, it's an impressive feat uh, War of the Satellites, um, it leans heavily on some of the same things that this does, which I'm sure we'll get into, which is the uh, the tangled interpersonal relationships within uh, within mm. the you know w- with w- within the crew members, as it were. Yeah, and that does seem to be something that you see, and especially in a lot of American sci-fi of that period, that there has to. Be, even if they're all in space and the world is under threat, there has to be a love interest and there has to be a woman, and uh, who will f- is probably a tough scientist, but she'll fall in love with the guy by the end. You know, yeah, all of that. And this film, in its, it seems like in its attempts to be as American as possible, is uh, quite happily going down that road. Shall we? Um, shall we go through the plot? Sure. And then, if you if you want to stop me at any point, then we we can do that. So I'm using um, Tim Lucas's plot summary here because it's quite detailed. I Even though I know all the films we're talking about are really old, but I don't think I'm going to completely spoil the end. Although, you know, you can guess what the end is going to be. But <laughs> because these films are not these these films are not so well known that anyone listening might want to go out and actually watch it. So I'll, I won't go all the way to the end. But anyway, so in response to Russia's 1957 launching of the Sputnik satellite the world's first manned space flight is quickly mounted at cape shark so that's quite impressive we've gone from the you know as we know in the real space race and the set the war of the satellites that was really going on the russians did get there first but it wasn't like america was then able to just say okay we'll stick a guy up in space to get our own back you know it took a long time (laughs) but here it's just it's pretty quick um from a pool of candidates from different world countries American pilot John McLaren, that's a good, strong American name, mm-hmm. uh, is chosen to become the first man in space. Let's take a quick pause to point out how bizarre it is that no one knows who's actually getting in the rocket to go up mm. into space to make this first manned sp- man space yeah. flight until some bizarre decision or lottery or whatever takes place yeah. mere minutes before the damn takeoff. Yeah. This is uh, yeah. this is not realistic, people. Come on. 
he doesn't need to do any training or or did they make everyone do the same training and then you have all these people who went through pure hell training for something like this who lose by you know because someone rolled the wrong die i mean Mm. i mean i know that does happen to a certain degree with in real space stuff um the russians did that and nasa did that i think where they wouldn't necessarily the the choice as to who was doing what would be relatively late but certainly not five minutes before the rocket goes up i know Uh, (laughs) yeah so uh so the object of his six-day mission is to orbit the moon while attended by 25 monitoring stations around the world which is like you said we get to that bit later where we get to see all these different places um so he's going to go up for six days to go around the moon that seems like nothing could possibly go wrong no um with that Smooth and it's an it's an atomic rocket if i'm right in remembering mm-hmm. that which obviously you know the first rockets were not atomic but um that ties nicely in with all of the other atomic stuff that people were frightened of in the 1950s so it's a good way of bringing these two things together into one film yeah and it's a good thing to set the scene just a little bit to realize that in 1958 the vast majority of american science fiction movies that have been produced for that for that particular decade had insisted that radioactivity and atomic power were going to get out of control and make insects and animals really big so Uh, Doom is just around the corner anytime anyone in a science fiction movie brings up atomic power or radiation or anything that even smacks slightly of that subject. So, you know, we're on a doomed trajectory from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not going to end well whenever that is a plot device. So, um, So after a tearful separation from his wife, Mary, and his young son, Dennis... Um, and then, and Dennis has a dog, or or does the dog belong to the? I think the dog might belong to the base. Yeah, I don't but know. There's the definitely dog a re- seems to hang out. Yeah, yeah. There's a relationship there between the boy and his dog, which is, no pun intended, another <laughs> uh, nuclear influenced movie from a few years later. Um, and the dog's name is Geiger, which I thought was a nice gag. Yeah, but isn't uh-huh. this a little early for that to be be? Uh, well, no, I guess not. I know. I, I I realize what I realize what you're saying, which is you know the whole Geiger Geiger counter idea and the whole radiation thing. Mm. I wonder if it's a subjective thing. Um, in other words, are they essentially just you know? Is it another little thing to to make the audience aware? Oh, remember, there's radiation around. <laughs> yeah, just because they can keep shouting Geiger, Geiger, mm-hmm. come yeah. back, Geiger and stuff which yeah it's pretty funny um so after saying his tearful goodbyes and then i think um so his wife she's had enough of being in the desert she's had enough of her husband uh and everything oh no wait no that's later i'm getting ahead of myself no so at this point she's all she's all supportive and so he gets in the rocket and uh it's an xz rocket and apparently and he blasts off. However, it doesn't last very long. It certainly doesn't last six days. After exiting the Earth's atmosphere, something strange occurs inside John's capsule. Unknown forces interfere with the astronaut's consciousness. And he does start to act very strangely at this point. His delivery is very stilted. And I wasn't sure yeah. if that was because of this strange force or is it supposed to represent what weightlessness does to your uh motor functions but he was acting really weird or or i was starting to think is he being is he is this going to be something like quatermass experiment is he becoming possessed by something in space but he starts to act really weird i have to say yeah he acts he acts quite robotic during the flight Mm. the flight uh the flight sequences when you know we're, we're just essentially seeing him from the from the chest up and it's and it's mm. all this, you know, techno babble, techno babble go- gobbledygook. But at the, <laughs> at the same time, I have to admit that up to that point in the film, his performance when he was interacting with his wife uh, in the first parts of the movie were, I gotta say, they were they were so stilted and bizarre in their 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 the way he's holding himself and the way he's 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 delivering the dialogue and how little facial movement and even it's strange to notice his neck movement i i started to wonder 
is this guy an, a robot? Is he? Are we are, are we being set up for a reveal later in the movie where it turns out that he's been you know like taken over by an alien or that he's actually a robot instead of a human being? Is this going to be some kind of Twilight Zone type reveal later in the story? Yeah, and it's like that's true. Oh. And it was just and it was so you know like I say not having seen the film before, that's what I'm wondering about. And when it when it turns out that no 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 he was just an incredibly stiff performer right then yeah. for whatever reason <laughs> uh, it's it's a bit yeah. it was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, this is uh, we should say this is Paul Hubschmid, um, who is a Swiss actor who's yeah I tricked in you into saying his European name. Films. Yeah, thank you. He's in <laughs> loads of European films, but he's also in Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which is quite fun. Uh, a few years before this one. But um, yeah, his performance is pretty stiff in these opening scenes. But yeah, and then he just seems to have something's happened in his brain. But anyway, so <laughs> they lose control at this point. He loses control um, and they lose contact with him on from the ground. And they're advising him to, to um, abort yeah. or eject. But then it turns out that he just does that on his own anyway and uh i'm not quite sure what he's ejecting into does well, he have a little the, escape the, the pod? capsule they 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 uh, they they get across the idea during during the space flight that if he runs into trouble if there's some kind of problem with the atomic engine the the part of the mm. ship he's in can be he can he can uh, eject oh, yeah, it, it away from the uh, part of the the rocket yeah. that actually contains the engine and that is what he ends up so, having to do this is what he does but unfortunately he forgets to turn the atomic engine off before he um, before he ejects. And when he gets to the ground and they've talked to him and they say, you did turn that off, right? And he said, oh, I thought you turned it off. It's like having a conversation with your wife about whether you've left the gas on. <laughs> and like, no, you. I said you should turn that off. Well, then he really uh, quickly you know. covers and says, well, I, I tried, but the controls weren't working. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. we have no way to verify that. So I'm not didn't sure if you, I trust yeah. you, you American. They're like, didn't you hear us telling you to turn it off? And oh no, that you know, oh couldn't hear anything. So now we've got our peril, and so but this is also the end of any stuff where we're seeing Italians in space. As I, this is my <laughs> sort of tenuous connection between these films. So yeah. the space scenes are over in the first act. He's back on the ground again, and now what we're left with is a people in a room shouting at each other film. Uh, trying to decide what to do because he's now basically left an atomic bomb armed and primed um, in space and uh, something bad could happen right but uh, maybe things will probably be fine and then at this so this is where then he starts arguing with his wife because she wants to go home to America he is dedicated to his job um, so she's like oh I'm going I'm off so she goes off to the airport with uh, Dennis and he then discovers that this is what happens when you leave an atomic bomb floating around in the atmosphere. Uh, shortly after John's successful return to Earth, the rocket has exploded in a belt of asteroids, fusing them together into one great mass that is now hurtling towards planet Earth. Now which, we get which, sound, which sounds bad on its face. Let's be mm. let's let's be let's be honest. Yeah, and we do get shots of the uh, fused meteorites, kind of drifting slowly towards the Earth, and um, that bit's perhaps not the best special effect in the film. No, it's effective it's, at getting across what they're trying to do, but yeah, I, I yeah, agree. it doesn't look great. <laughs> um, but you know, top marks for trying. Mario, <laughs> as I can say, so this is uh, this is now a problem, and this, of course, this plot suddenly becomes something that we're all familiar with: meteorites, you know, out of control, heading towards the Earth. Um, they even give us a nice close-up in the film of the Tunguska crater, um, which is a sort of famous meteorite that hit this forest in Russia mm -hmm. back in the I want to say in the 1910s. Yeah, and it was like the, first, the first biggest explosion century. Yeah, yeah, the biggest explosion ever felt on on Earth before nuclear bombs, and um, so they're kind of reminding us of the peril 
of what's going to happen if this thing reaches Earth. And so that then made me think that obviously those films like Armageddon and um, Meteor and all these other things, either they've all seen this film and just ripped it off or this was already a bit of a science fiction staple and that's probably been around for a while uh, and that this wasn't the first film to do that. But I don't really know. But it just it's such a familiar story. It's hard to know where it came from. Well, if you're if you're talking about um, the basic story of this film, the th- this had been done in Pulp Fiction many many times already. Mm-hmm. If you if you read mm-hmm. uh, if you if you have any desire to read uh, science fiction published in pulp, pulp magazines in the United States or hell even in uh, Europe, to be honest, uh, you were going to run across variation on this kind of story. You know, right. once or twice a year, regardless of how effectively the editors of the magazines tried to not, co- you know, tried to not include, you know, so, such similar stories, because it's pretty, it's pretty standard idea. Uh, by that time, the public was well enough aware of the danger of, uh, you know, meteorites uh, falling to Earth and how dangerous it could be. I think at that point, we even had the, uh, the, pretty. Pretty science, pretty pretty well based theory about the uh, the uh, the end of the dinosaurs being caused by a massive meteor strike and how that mm. could be that could factor into this kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's a, mm. it's a story idea that was floating around out there for a very long time, often used. And uh, one could say that uh, this is not going to be the first time we encounter this particular idea on this podcast. <laughs> no, <laughs> or even this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I, f- I forgot to mention, so we've got all this drama going on, so now we know what's going to happen. But meanwhile, we're getting human relationship interaction down on Earth. So we've got John and his wife, and she luckily, at the last minute, decided not to get on the plane. So she's going to come back, and he's going to be reunited with her, and they can apologize to each other. There's also... Um, you say there is luckily, a, a, are you sure about that? Well, yeah. I mean, because <laughs> do, do we need this much space? this much time in a supposed science fiction film taken up by uh a wife wow. essentially uh complaining about her husband which is i mean this this is like, don't get me wrong I, I guess you've got to fill 82 minutes somehow but man. yeah they they didn't have any stock footage they could put in at that point so they needed <laughs> they needed a bit more of that um but there's also some other human interest drama going on with it there's a scientist or a, um, a mathematician called Katie I think her name is and yeah. she's seen as a she's seen as being a bit frigid a bit cold all she's interested in is the is the calculations and if the temperature is wrong in her calculator room then it can affect the calculations um, and she's obsessed with with making all these calculations and there's another scientist there who's made a bet that he's gonna get off with her by the end of the film basically Um <laughs> In other and words, then he does in, a, just, in about just, five minutes. Yeah, well, that's just it. I mean, this, it's just as sexist as it sounds, people. I mean, yeah. if you're thinking 1958 uh, gender stereotypes, you're there. I mean, it's it couldn't yes. be more obvious that, you know, the, there are two female characters in the entire movie. One is a wife who does nothing but complain about her husband's dedication to his job. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, oh, a... a, a coldly uh, I mean a sympathetic don't get me wrong but but a, a, mm. a female scientist who's in charge of uh, the, the gigantic computer they use to calculate all the things that they need to calculate to make the rockets do what they need to do and she is um, she's painted as this frigid woman who you know probably is pretty attractive but we'll never know because you know she's hiding behind those glasses who could see past those to see any inherent beauty in this woman's face Uh, (laughs) it's complete it's it's exactly the cliches that you would expect and i i don't i i would struggle to discern whether or not in 1958 this was a this was considered quite the cliche that looking back you know 60 some odd years later we we know it to be but at the same time it's let's ask this question just out loud what did you think of the romantic subplot here between uh katie the the female scientist and uh the uh the uh was it doc doctor his name is peter dr leduc 
Uh, oh, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, I mean, the thing is, I mean, well, he, he, he does a jerky thing by claiming that he's, you know, he's going to he's going to make sure that in the next few days he's going to he's going he's gonna to be able to kiss her. But at the same time, the way he the way he woos her and the fact that he does seem to actually hold some some real, uh, you know, warm feelings toward her. Uh, it, it's he has some great lines of dialogue, at least in the English dub, where he's he's attempting to, to woo her and to gain her affections. Uh, not knowing that she already she's overheard him by accident saying that he's gonna mm-hmm. you know essentially he's gonna conquer this woman it's uh yeah. it, it, it it it's i want to hate it but it's actually not too bad you know yeah i think he comes across as just being a bit of a douche yeah at, at the beginning whereas she um rather than being the kind of cold frigid character we sympathize with her because we know that she knows he's a douche but at the same time as they're facing the end of the world together you know then there's a kind of thawing if there is a cold war in this film you could argue it's between them two and um <laughs> well put, it well kind put. of does thaw uh, i mean she does let him kiss her even though she knows and then she's cross with him because she's ah you've won your bet now and he's all embarrassed because he didn't know that she knew but it seems to be eventually you know kind of all is forgiven because she's good at her job he's good at his job together they're gonna make this computer save the world so yeah it it does it pans out better than it could have done at the beginning true um but i think there's no argument that she's a much better human being than he is and that she could probably do better (laughs) yes i agree but she's she's in the desert in the middle of australia so she hasn't got a lot of choice yeah and all the other men are all the other men are married or much older or koala bears so yeah yeah or you know not that having not that the men being much older ever usually is a problem in a film especially um, not films made at this time where it's no but that's yeah that's that's a story for an, another day oh um so here we go so we've got initially the, there are reported problems they're picking up problems with the earth's uh, magnetism if i'm right like the magnetic field of the earth is starting to change and we know that because um, animals of all kinds wild and domestic including Geiger uh, begin to run in migratory packs Mm -hmm. and this is where we get some brilliant stock footage of animals legging it and the idea is that they're all running away from the coastal regions around the world all the animals are fleeing inland because they know that there's some major tsunamis about to come so that's the first sign that things are, are going wrong here. And the even though I think somebody says in the film that this hasn't been picked up on our instruments. And um, Katie says, but, you know, animals are much more sensitive than our instruments. This has to and be the so moment this, where you had your first inkling that this was very Ed Woodian in its construction. The, the <laughs> idea, because th- it's clear every bit of this footage is nothing but stock footage. And it's, you know, it, mm-hmm. you already knew that some of the rocket footage earlier in the picture had to be that way as well. And this, this mm-hmm. honestly, this, this, like, this is the biggest reminder to me of that hilarious scene in Tim Burton's f- film, Ed Wood, where you're looking at all this, the animal stock footage and he's, He's talking about how easy it would be to construct a film out of all this stuff. And it's like, well, here it is, man. Here's a big chunk yeah, of this exactly. movie where we're getting across exactly. this idea using nothing but it's animal really stock funny. footage. Yeah, if, if they had a load of stock footage from a circus, they would have had a plot line about how the uh, magnetism was affecting the clowns or something. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's just, you know, it's pretty tenuous. But, um, I mean, they do say that animals are sensitive to earthquakes. So I suppose we have to give them some slack there but yeah it's pretty funny Uh, so then a large sphere appears in the sky surrounded by a gigantic halo in the hours before sundown and this is where we get barva's really cheap special effects of uh, just basically holding a studio light behind a sheet and then projecting photos of cities onto the other side but is it but it works it's quite effective it looks like we're getting um mini uh what's the word it's gone out of my head what do you call it when the moon goes in front of the sun oh an eclipse eclipses thank you sorry (laughs) what happened to me there i wonder what the hell you were searching for there yeah it's it's almost like i was on that that rocket with uh with john there my brain just (laughs) stopped working 
Yeah, so it looks like there's an eclipse going on. There's something weird in the atmosphere. Um, in time, other bright spheres are manifest in the sky. As the time of ultimate collision draws near, the governments of the world force their populations into subterranean shelters. And this is where we get more great stock footage of the military. Some of this stock footage actually, I felt was perhaps a little bit uncomfortable because some of it looked like it was from the war maybe. But we've got like the police rounding people up. We've got hundreds yeah, of people yeah. running, running afraid from stuff. And I and because you know that all of that is real, that felt a bit mm, like those people that we're seeing in that footage are actually properly having a horrible time. They're not acting. So that I don't know what you thought, but that just made I, me think. Oh, I'll be honest. That's it, a bit much. I only there, I only <laughs> was thinking about that kind of a little after the footage is on screen because at the time I'm not re I'm not thinking oh that's stock footage oh my goodness that means that's probably you know th those cops are really mm. menacing those people instead of you know supposedly yeah. helping them <laughs> but you know it, yeah. a minute or so clicks by and you're like oh yeah that's that's that has to have been that there's no way they spent the money to stage that because there are far too many people no. in those shots so yeah yeah no the only um, the only actual real life uh footage which i'm assuming they shot somewhere quite close to the studio probably um is we see a bunch of local people having to get to a shelter i think the idea mm -hmm. is that this shelter is on the military base or whatever kind of base they're on because um john's wife mary and his son they're sent to go and get into the shelter but we don't even see them actually going into a shelter it looks more like they're just standing around under some railway arches yeah, but I don't know I, if we're supposed to assume that's underground. It it, it would have been much Maybe. more effective if they, not 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 that they not that they they needed to really, but if if they wanted it to mm. to, to feel more like some kind of, uh, I, I'm assuming fallout shelter, for for lack yeah. of a, lack of a better design, then they needed to yeah. be in a cramped room where we could see the where we could see the roof the ceiling I, I, while we're in the room to kind of give you that idea of being in an enclosed mm. space, but. I don't think they were. I don't think they had a spot where they could do that. So yeah. No, but that sequence is quite nicely lit. To be fair, I do like the lighting there. It's quite atmospheric. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, it does look more like they're in a train station. <laughs> well, this is a good point. You, you talk about the lighting, and I, I agree with you. One of one of the reasons why I would love to see a better looking print of this is that uh, knowing a little bit about the, the the photographic tricks that Bava was a master of. Uh, in black and white cinema, this is of course a black and white film, folks. In case you had any, mm. had any, oh, yeah, in case we had made that clear, uh, some mm. of the tricks he used to get some really interesting effects, and some of them take place when uh, earlier, when we're when we're watching the possibly robotic uh, actor in the capsule before he jettisons and and endangers the entire world, is because it's shot in black and white. If you use different colored gels over. Uh, or, or, or essentially kind of project different colors over uh, someone's face or over uh, an image on black and white film it changes the texture and the way it looks within those you know black and white and shade, shades of gray on mm. uh, on film stock so you can get some really interesting effects that give you uh, you know an otherworldly feel or just uh, the look of something that isn't earthly in a certain way which is yeah. very you know exactly the kind of thing that you're aiming for in a fantasy or science fiction movie yeah and so and that's something that something that he did with particularly in uh, Ivan Piri mm -hmm. uh, and so long there's this. a little bit of that going on in this movie and uh mm -hmm. he of course he was also a master of of uh using his lighting to such an effect that you could you could make a place look larger or smaller or more interesting just by virtue of where he placed the lights and how he how he uh put uh you know both the actors and different little pieces of set design within the image mm -hmm. and so you do get a little bit of that in this movie um and and, and therefore i would love i would love to see a, a really sharp looking yeah. print of this that no one's ever going to probably spend the money to create but the um no. the beauty of the you know the, the real joys for a fan of baba is just looking for those small elements within the uh within the images he's putting on screen here that you know, tie you back to stuff that he would do or continue to do, I should say, in later films that you already know better. So. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, going to the shelters turns out to not be very helpful because the Earth is now 
heating up. I'm not. I don't quite entirely understand why the meteor approaching the Earth is causing the Earth to now get really hot, but um, spontaneous combustions are breaking out all over the Earth, mm-hmm. causing everybody to flee the shelters, and uh, they start fighting each other and rioting. And it, this bit reminded me a little bit of um, the day the Earth caught fire. Do you know that film, the British science fiction film? Well, and that one, that's that the one, one is about. I'm sorry, but that sorry. that's the movie with the similar title that I that yeah. I, that made me think that I had already seen this movie. Oh, see, yeah, because that one is also sort of nuclear atomic based, but that one's about nuclear bombs that had exploded and it's causing the Earth to now shift off its axis and start tr- moving closer to the sun and the earth is getting hotter and hotter and this bit of the film kind of reminded me of that that for some reason the meteor and getting closer and the magnetism mm-hmm. i don't know i'm not a scientist but i'm <laughs> i'm not a hundred percent convinced that the science in this film really holds up okay let's let's be clear i'm i'm pretty <laughs> sure that 90 to 99 percent of the science presented in this movie is complete crap uh there there are times when i mean, i i honestly there's there's a there's a um a string of about three sentences that one of the international group of scientists slings out at a certain point in the movie wh- where i i literally stopped the movie turned to my beloved beth on the couch next to me and went not one word of that made sense and she she's <laughs> nodding her head and going that was all gibberish <laughs> maybe it didn't feel that way in 1958 but i'm telling you right now in 2021 Mm. all of those words in that combination combination do constitute an english sentence or three but they do not make any sense no so poor old john at this point he's feeling really guilty because he forgot to switch the thing off and this is kind of all his fault and somebody somebody's having a conversation in the in the the room that they're all in and mentions something to do with atomic power or nuclear power or something but then then the little light bulb goes on over his head or maybe just a little fire catching fire on his head but (laughs) anyway this inspiration hits him that of course we'll use our own atomic weapons to uh to save the day so um so he this is again this ties in with the whole um which film which is the one with elijah wood it's not armageddon it was the other one was that one called oh you're thinking about uh you're thinking about deep impact deep impact yeah that's the one well here's here's where here's where here's where we should show we're going to show our ages here relatively uh let me let me tell you right now my friend the movie this reminds me of is a a little a little crappy disaster film from the late 70s called meteor Mm. Uh, Starring Sean Connery and uh, a lot of other actors. Um, it's, <laughs> that's that's what it said on the poster, isn't it? <laughs> that's pretty much the tagline. Sean Connery <laughs> and a bunch of other actors face sheer, you know, near destruction at the hands of Meteor, and uh, mm. it's it's a very it's a very similar thing. The the uh, the the real change for 1979, which is when I think the movie was made, uh, is that the the missiles that are used to uh, try to blast the meteor into into dust are actually already space based. They're already in orbit. Oh, um, that's handy. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so uh, this, you know, the, don't get me wrong. If if you if you really want to have some fun, seeking out meteor and imbibing enough alcohol or whatever substance of your choice would help you to enjoy a film that isn't particularly perfect. Uh, it, it could be an evening of fun. But it will remind mm. you in some ways of exactly what this film is because there's only so many variations you can put on this stuff. Yeah. And it coming at the end of the 70s, it's it's very much in the vein of your standard disaster film, which, let's be honest, this is an early disaster. This is a, 19, this is a 1958 yeah. disaster film. Yeah, this is where they're going to get rid of all the nuclear weapons in one go, basically. They decide that what they realize what they need to do is every country in the world to fire its... Um, nuclear missiles at the meteor and somebody says oh but we're going to let loads of radiation radiation out into the atmosphere and then another scientist is like oh don't worry it'll all just get dispersed into the atmosphere it'll be totally fine <laughs> i um, know it, it, there's no one 
No one. He's got his fingers crossed behind his back there, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's <laughs> he's literally that second getting on the phone and making arrangements to buy yeah. every bit of bunker material he can possibly yeah. find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think this again. This shows this is a very optimistic film in terms of global politics because it and takes radiation. no time at all. Well, yeah, it takes no time at all to get the whole world ready that all of their missiles are apparently already pointing in the sky that doesn't take much to just get them to go all they need is the maths all they need is the coordinates they can't just point it at the giant rock in the sky you think that'd be quite easy but no <laughs> think, they've yes. got to get they, they need katie and her, her overheating computer. computer yeah yeah her o overheating supercomputer to make every single calculation so they can then fire their rockets at this thing so that's pretty much the that's the plan well and I will, of course I will say this the the idea that yeah. would that the the katie run supercomputer that they have there in australia to to do all the calculations that's one of the things about 1958 that feels re very very scientifically realistic because i don't mm. know that anywhere else in the world would have had a computer of that size and magnitude that actually was built to compute all of this stuff. So at least that is mm -hmm. one area of scientific accuracy that I think kind of bears up under scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how the computer is just kind of giving its output on little uh, dot matrix printer type thing or whatever they, <laughs> whatever they would have had in, in 1958. But I'm mm -hmm. sure it seemed very modern and futuristic at the time but yeah they're having problems as well because the um obviously the, the world is heating up but heat will make the computer not work um and so they've got to make sure the air con is working all these things going on i'm not going to say more really um other than it's okay the dog is fine so you don't need to worry about the dog but i'm not going to say whether or not their plan works although you can probably guess because this is that kind of film whether their plan is going to work or not but there are some quite good scenes in the last few minutes uh as to you know getting the calculations how they're coping with all the action people are going a bit mad in the heat and, and actually yeah that stuff at the end where one of the scientists has suddenly suddenly found religion and loses his yeah. mind and is causing problems of his own. Yeah, uh, he sees actually, this as, as the second coming or something is yeah, happening. Yeah, th that, that is actually some of the more interesting stuff in the movie. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons, there, there's a number of reasons why I don't, you know, I, I, I don't consider this a, a bad movie. It's just, it's not nearly as good as it should have been. And it, it's, mm. it's a little too inert, but... I have to say, some of that stuff in the in the final few minutes where everything is you know coming to a boil is pretty darn interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got some good action going on, and some more great Bava special effects, um, and a load of really good stock footage. They they seem to have found every single clip that existed of missiles taking off. Yeah, and um, and put them all into the movie. So that, from a historical point of view, that's really interesting. I read, I was reading somewhere that said that in those days most rocket tests ended in failure with the rockets blowing up on the platform. Mm -hmm. So, so to have footage of all of these rockets actually taking off was quite impressive, because more often than not they just blew up. Um, so yeah, from a sort of, if you're interested in the history of uh, missiles then there's something in there for you as well. But I, I enjoyed this movie, although it is cliched in lots of ways. The fact that it's it's an industry that wasn't previously making this kind of film and they're having a go, they're looking, again, this is classic Italian cinema and we'll talk about this all the time. They're looking at what's doing really well overseas and thinking, well, let's have a go at doing that ourselves. And this film feels like it would have fitted in perfectly in a Hollywood studio. There are plenty of films that are very, you know, sort of similar in in tone or style, and whatever. But this is this is a, a relatively young film industry, still recovering after um, decades of fascism and, and World War Two and all of that stuff, and they're trying something pretty much for the first time. So although it's not brilliant, I think it's still quite an impressive piece of work for what it is. I agree. I, I, I find it uh, an interesting curio, uh, not necessarily a, a great film by any stretch, uh, but there are some interesting things in it. One thing I would like to, one 
thing I would like to point out, and this is uh, something that might be distracting to someone who's coming to this film after being really familiar with a lot of different Italian or European exploitation films uh, made over the next couple of decades. There's one actor in the movie who's going to stand out for you because you're going to... He's, oh, he, I nearly forgot. Yeah, yes. you're, you're, you're going to know immediately, oh, I know this guy, I know this guy's face. And uh, yeah. I, I, I guess I cannot trick you into saying this guy's name, so I'm going to try to give it a shot, try to give it a shot here. Um, uh, is it Giacomo Rossi Stewart? Uh, yeah, I think we can say that. And I, what's I, interesting I can say is that, but it sounds terrible. Uh, but uh, I think it would probably say Giacomo. Giacomo. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's a J. Giacomo. Okay. Cool. Good. I think. So, so but you... just because I'm having it, just because I've been trying to teach myself Italian, doesn't mean I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, his his character's name is Stuart. I nearly forgot him. He's mm -hmm. not even in the credits. No, he's not. So I think he he must have been fairly young at this point. It's quite early in his career. Yeah. But yeah, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, it's that guy. It's so nice to see him. <laughs> and, and, and the thing um, is, you, I mean, like I say, he he pops up in so many movies over the years. Mm. Death Smiles on the Murderer, uh, on a Murderer, Crimes of the Black Cat in the '70s. Uh, he's in uh, the Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Uh, he's he's in. Well, for me, for me, it's the Last Man on Earth. That's yeah. always the film I think of when I see him. He's the uh, he's the taunting uh, undead villain. Yeah. Uh, in that film with Vincent Price yeah. and he's amazing yeah and uh, of course he was in um he was in Kaltiki mm -hmm. uh and he's also in Kill Baby Kill I think he's the star of that one yeah which means so that he, did a he few... worked with Baba several times over the yeah. years and we're going to be talking about him again in a couple of weeks because he's also in Wild Wild Planet yes indeed which is exciting. Well, he's he's in Wild, um, he's in two. Or is he, he's also in War Between the in, Planets. And uh, yeah, he's I know he's in some of those. I, I they all blend into one in my head. But yeah, he's definitely yeah. It's, so yeah, that was really fun to see him in there. I think he's the only actor that I properly recognised. So yeah, thank you. I'd forgotten to mention him, but yeah, you're right. But I I, I think I think he's great, and even in a small role, he stands out. And I can't figure out if it, if if it's if he stands out because I've seen him in so many movies. Or if he stands out because he has such a, an interesting looking face. I mean, he's he was he was a good looking man who mm. who uh, who really he, he he's actually a pretty effective actor no matter how small the role. And it is weird that he's he's in the entire movie and he's not even credited. It's bizarre. Yeah, he's a main, he's got a main part. Yeah. Although towards the end, it mainly just involves him looking at you know, talking on the radio, and then he doesn't really get he doesn't. He, I suppose the thing with him is that. Although he's on screen quite a lot, he doesn't really have a life of his own. He's just one of the guys in the room on the radio doing the communications. But, That's um, true. but he does have yeah, he's got presence. Like he's he's good, and it's uh, yeah, it was nice to see him in here. I, I don't know the the rest of the cast. I wasn't particularly familiar with. Obviously, Paul Hubschmid has uh, <laughs> been in a couple of things that I recognise, but he's not a face that I particularly new Evo Garani who's in the film um, oh, yeah, he he's plays. someone if you go a little deeper he's someone that you've probably seen in a lot of movies whether you recognize him or not yeah because yeah. he was he also he did, he did other stuff a few other films yeah. like Black Sunday and a few others yeah yeah so there's a few names in here of people who are going to go on to do more uh, in this world which is which is cool but uh, yeah I think uh, yeah this is definitely a film that's worth looking out for if you're interested in uh, in this stuff which is presumably you are if you're listening um, and it is currently just streaming very easily to find online I'll put a link to the film in the show notes I think that and, a good way uh, to wrap it up is is kind of one of the way is the way that uh, I think Matt Blake wraps it up in his book science fiction okay. Italian style uh, he has a quote yeah, cool. here it's a it's a review for uh, La Stampa uh, covering a TV screening in 1965 and the, the quote is, uh, a curious affair, even if the events depicted sometimes smack of naivete and the sets <laughs> are barely able to hide the fact that they're made out of paper mache. <laughs> this Italo-French co-production has, has some original elements that still hold up, but the attempts to generate suspense fail, and in more than one sequence, the science fiction loses track of reality, unquote. Uh, yeah. You know, that's... 
that's kind of my feelings on the subject. I think it's yeah. uh, it's interesting, especially from the from an historical standpoint. And this guy kind of hit it on the head uh, just you know seven years after the movie was made. Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time to uh, to watch this film. It sounds like you watched it twice, which is uh, particularly impressive. Uh, the, the the second time through was a little a little quicker. I, I I won't say that I sped the film up, but you can surmise what you wish. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening and for joining us as we start to take a look at these uh, Italian space movies. Next time we're going to be talking about the Antonio Margheriti film Assignment Outer Space. Rod, thank you, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Excellent. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye. Bye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.